You're listening to Slow Theology, Simple Faith for Chaotic Times, with A.J. Swoboda and E.J. Gupta. Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk in this um, in this session. We're gonna talk about the next line of the creed, which is um, following. Uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, the statement "I believe in the Holy Catholic Church" and the forgiveness, uh, the conf- the 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 uh, communion of saints, uh, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion. Uh, of saints. We've been walking through the Apostles' Creed and trying to wrestle with some of the core concepts and ideas that we found in uh, in this in this idea. And this probably couldn't come at a more important time in the history of the church, at least in the Western American tradition, of what does it mean to actually believe in the church? And now I'll be honest, of all the points in the creed that make the least amount of sense. I mean, I, 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 when you look at all, all of them, right? I believe in Jesus. No, check. <laughs> I believe in the Father. Check. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Check. I, for, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Check. I mean, you go through all these rationally. They all make sense. But I'm going to be honest with you. The one, you remember that when you were a kid, that game, that, that little magazine that had the picture on the back and it said, what are the 10 things that don't fit in this picture? Mm. And you're like, ah, oh, they're there, there. Okay, I look at the creed, and all of it makes sense, except for, to me, the line, I believe in the church. Mm. And here's why it doesn't make sense to me. All of the other things that we are invited to believe in are things that are not difficult to believe in for me. The belief, belief in the forgiveness of sins is not hard for me. Belief in Jesus as God is not hard for me. Right. But of all of the things that we're invited to believe, the hardest one to believe, not that I don't, it's just the hardest one to believe, is to believe in the church. And I, I think a part of that is by virtue of having pastored and seeing behind the curtains and knowing the church is a very human community with real people. Um, it's hard to believe in an organization or community that you know has done really bad things yeah. in, in the history of the world. It's hard to believe in a community that has hurt people that you know very much. This coming from a guy that is a very committed churchman. I go to church every Sunday. I serve faithfully. I'm on our teaching team. I believe in the church, but it's hard to believe in the church. I think added to this is this kind of moment in history that we have that says, if you are a part of a system that is doing anything that's wrong or evil or bad, then you have a responsibility to leave that organization as a a sign that you uh, are not complicit or something like that. And to to be a part of the church is to identify with its brokenness. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot in in my um, in the book of Isaiah. One of the most repeated phrases in Isaiah is the Holy One of Israel. God is the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. That is a weird phrase for a holy God to give himself in light of how much unholiness Israel has in the book of Isaiah. God is identifying with the brokenness of his mm-hmm. people. And I feel like as a follower of Jesus, we all, when we say, I go to church, I love the church. I believe in the church. It's like God saying the Holy One of Israel. Not that we're above the church, but it's it's identifying with a broken community. It's hard to say, I believe in the church. I do, but it's hard. Do you find it equally difficult? 
to say that phrase. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I've never thought about it exactly that way that, you know, this is something that Christians have to confess, mm. right? That we have to confess, I believe. Like, when you say, I believe, you know, in the Holy Spirit, you're kind of affirming something greater than us, uh, something transcendent. When you say, I believe in the church, this is us. You know what I mean? mm, mm, <laughs> this mm. is who we are. Um, you know, I kind of think of that language, you know, if, if we're adding in communion of saints. Um, I think this would have been hard for the first followers of Jesus as well, because just take the Corinthians, for example. This is a really messed up group of people. They're dealing with all kinds of sexual sins. They're dealing with disunity. They're dealing with pride. They're dealing with um, arrogance, all kinds of stuff. And yet Paul starts out the letter reminding them that they are saints, right? That they're holy people. And just as you're saying, you know, we recognize the brokenness of the church, yet one of the common uh, images or terminology for the church and for Christians is that we're saints or we're holy. Hmm. Um, and so there's a paradox at the heart of this. On the one hand, broken um, sinners, right? Luther's, you know, image of at the same time sinner and righteous. Um, and also that there's that sense of believing in what God has invested in. I'm a big Ted Lasso fan. I don't know if you've watched Ted Lasso, but one of the takeaways from Ted Lasso is, are these signs that say believe because you have this team that is not doing so well. This is a soccer team in the show. And you have this American coach that's brought over and, you know, he's apparently not that great at coaching, <laughs> but there's this sign, coaching soccer, but there's the sign that, you know, and he's trying to get them on board. There's a sign that says believe and eventually people start slapping that sign. I wonder if we should do that in church where we should have a sign <laughs> that says believe at the beginning, believe in us. Yes. Right. We don't believe in us for ourselves sake. We don't believe in us because AJ is great or because Nij is great or any other J. Um, but to say it's a part of the creed, I'll, I'll tell you a story that's a little bit discouraging. When I was interviewing for a job, this is a long time ago, I was interviewing for a seminary job and, um, you know, I think one of the interviewers was asking me what I'm passionate about teaching. And I was talking, you know, I was saying I'm passionate about teaching about the church. And I say, I like to tell my students that the church is the fourth agent of redemption, Father, mm. Son, Spirit, Church. It's not on the same level as the Trinity. It's not perfect like the Trinity. But like it or not, God has created the church as the vessel of redemption. And I remember, what, you know, one of the people interviewing said, people aren't going to like hearing that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think for a couple of reasons, one is just what you said. Um, there's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of mistrust. Uh, I've been just reading the news about, um, I think, Brian Houston's father, the, 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 the pastor is, is in Australia. And some of the, he actually confessed, the father confessed to um, sexually... Uh, molesting, abusing uh, a young person, very young person, repeatedly. Um, and now, you know, the, the son is implicated in this because he didn't report it and all this stuff. Just reading that, I just read it the other day. It just makes me feel sick. Yeah. It just yeah. makes me feel like giving up on the church because there's so many skeletons in our closet. Um, and so in many ways, this is the part of the creed 
that is the hardest to believe because why would God leave so much to chance? Mm. Why would God leave this precious gospel in our filthy hands. Mm. Um, is there is there hope there, or where do you find hope in that, AJ? Well, there's 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 this there's a sense right that that Jesus shows us the way to do this. I mean, when going back to okay, so going back to that Isaiah theme of the Holy One of Israel, it's repeated over. There's a, John Golden Gay in his uh, Old Testament uh, commentary on Isaiah has a whole section on the the almost obsessive repetition of this phrase that God mm. is the Holy One of Israel again. Right. Israel in Isaiah, it's described in not good terms. They're, I mean, they, they're you know they're living idolatry. Uh, their economic system is hurting the, the poor, the widow, and the orphan. I mean, this incessant plea towards systemic justice in Isaiah—it's insane. And and God yet still calls Himself the Holy One of Israel. When we look at Jesus's model for how He engaged with the the people of God when He comes, um, is it not? instructive. Did Jesus know? (laughs) Was Jesus aware of the systemic sin of Israel when he showed up? Mm. Was he aware? Let's go out on a limb here and say the omniscient God of the universe is hyper aware of the brokenness of the people of God. And yet the Gospels intentionally portray Jesus as faithfully going to synagogue, he shows up, he's a part of the community, he goes to the temple. Here's the point. Jesus, in a very powerful way, makes himself complicit with broken people as a way of saving and loving them. And and I, I would say at our moment in history that just tells us flee things that are broken, Jesus' approach is... Well, actually, you love things that are broken, and you go to them. This is in no way, shape, or form telling people who are in a situation where they're being abused to go back to your abuser. But the heart of God in Christ is, what's the Athanasius' famous line? If it's not assumed, it can't be healed. If it, Whatever God does not take upon himself cannot be healed. He must go to it to heal it. So the, I think the hope, yes, Nijay, um, the fact that we can sit here and name the sins of the church is what makes, is what gives me hope. Is because if there is one community in the in the world that should have the ability to be self prophetic and name their own sins publicly, it should be the community of of God's people, and that brings me tremendous hope. You know, I should also say that l- <clears throat> believing in the church does not mean that. It, you always like it, and and sometimes sometimes believing in something um, doesn't give you butterflies and make you feel good. But belief is deeper than just our emotional commitment to something. There are times that all of us believe in and invest in the community of God's people and don't like a lick of it. Don't like a lick of it. It's a lot like family, right? We you know a family is family, and we stick with our family through thick and thin. And you have times where you're frustrated with your family, and you have times where you know you need them. Um, I want to, I want to, in our in our remaining time in this uh, episode, I want to ask about um, probably one of the challenging aspects of the church is this notion that on the one hand it's Catholic. By Catholic, by the way, for listeners, if you don't know, 
It doesn't footnote, mean footnote footnote. <laughs> it doesn't mean you know the Roman Catholic Church as in the Pope. It's referring to the global church. This idea of Christians being everywhere and this faith being for all people. Um, and then the notion that it's one holy global church. Um, one of the criticisms that I hear against the church today, Jay, is how fractured it is with denominations and, you know, churches on every corner and your preference for what kind of cup holders are in your seat and, you know, whether you have drums or not, you know, all this stuff. Um, you know, I, I remember hearing the statistic one time there are over 10,000 de- Christian denominations in the United States uh, that I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if that were true. Um, you know, there is a kind of preference in the United States for choosing the church that fits, um, you know, your, uh, uh, your desires and needs. Um, is it a bad thing or a good thing that we can have these kind of tailored experiences of church? And how do you view that in light of the one global church? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so first of all, let's, let's talk a little bit about preference as, as just a, as a way to think about this. Um, yeah, really cool little book by, uh, a, a historian named Stephanie Kuntz. She wrote a book called Marriage, a History. And it's a, it's a history of how the, how the world has thought about what marriage is all about. She has a whole section there about how in the last 200 years, there has been a brand new, a brand new understanding of marriage. And here's the shift. Over 200 years ago, you did not pick the person you liked, you were attracted to, or the person you wanted to marry. You were set up. Uh, it's like it's like a hard eHarmony date. We're going to set you up for a debate date, and you're going to marry this person. It's called arranged marriage. And that the idea that we get to pick, choose, out of attraction, shared interest, shared likes, that we get to pick uh, the person we're going to marry is a brand new idea in human history. Mm. And the book, uh, Kuhn's book has nothing to do with the Christian faith whatsoever. I mean, she deals a little bit with the history of religion and marriage. But the, the big idea is that it, that is a major cultural shift in how we understand what, what you and I would call as Christians, what we call covenant or promise. Right. Is that we have shifted from um, a chosen covenant community to a, uh, or I should say a non-chosen covenant community to a chosen, we now pick our covenants. And the results are, on some levels, good. I'm grateful that I got to choose my wife. I'm grateful that I entered into a marriage that I made a will to enter into. But but at the same time, something has been changed in the way we understand covenant. And, and what's changed is we now are in covenants so long as we uh, like them. And I think that that paradigm in the Western church has taken root in our ecclesiology, our understanding of the church. We're in as long as we like it. Mm. And what's what's happened is we've shifted from, you know, here's the deal. You've, you've, you've done a lot of pastoral work. I've, I pastored a church. Something has shifted. It's really hard right now in, in church history as a pastor. When I was pastoring, I can tell you this is the case. It's almost impossible to sit somebody down in a spirit of honesty to reflect on their own sin because... There are churches down the street that will not force them to do that. Right. And so what ends up happening is we're in so long as we don't hear things that we don't want to hear. And so we the, really what's happening is this marketplace of church has created an environment where I'm not 
in a community because I'm called by God to do it. I'm in it because it just fits me right now in this season. Again, there's a lot of nuance to this, but there has been a major shift in, in how we engage with church. Some of it's good and some of it is tragic. Mm. And ultimately, I think that there is a direct parallel between the marketplace of church and the lack of character uh, in, in Christian communities, because we can now escape. We can run away from our narcissism and go find a church that's cool with that. Yeah. When our family lived in England for three years, when I was doing my PhD, um, England's a whole different you know, story when it comes to church, because they don't have our history and tradition of mega churches, and it's a largely unchurched population. So honestly, you know, we ended up going to a church of about 60 people, mm. uh, multi-generational, mostly older folk, and we absolutely loved it. It wasn't high production. It wasn't, but it was a, it was a community of regular people. Um, you know, there you know wasn't great food. It wasn't great sound and lighting and the worship was hymns, which is fine. Um, but, you know, talk about the opposite of the American experience, which is one of kind of highly personalized, highly preference, customized, oriented. Um, and then I've been in American uh, churches where, you know, it's like you're at a rock concert um, and it's, you know, everything you could want and you feel like, you know, you should be paying at the door or something. Um, one thing that I think about when it comes to preference is um you know the church in rome in the first century we when we read the you know paul's letter of the romans we get the sense that um there were these house churches that functioned as micro communities and you might have a gentile house church um you might have a jewish house church you might have a language oriented maybe an aramaic language house church you may have a greek oriented house church and it seems like the apostles were okay with that, that people could be with kind of a quote-unquote affinity group. I, I don't think that was a problem because there's something to say about some like-mindedness there in worship and in understanding the scriptures in your preferential language. I think what Paul was really pressing for was oneness and unity and community amongst those different preference <clears throat> groups. Yes. And that's not what I'm seeing right now. Um, you know, you have churches that sometimes have non-competition clauses that if you quit this church, you can't work at a church within a certain radius. I saw that happen when I lived in Seattle where there was a church that said, hey, if you quit, you know, if you leave our church, you can't work within such and such radius. Um, I don't think that's the Apostles' Creed's vision <laughs> for a unified church. I would love to see more oneness and respect and intercommunity between churches, even if they do separate into micro-communities. Um, how, how important do you think that is, or maybe have you seen that happen before? Well, Nijay, you're 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 talking as as a as a biblical scholar, and I'm trying. I'm. I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but. Um, Paul calls for unity in the New Testament, and yet we have multiple occasions where Paul calls people he wants to be at unity with to the carpet over really key theological issues. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, he calls out he calls out Peter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He he references a guy named Hymenaeus who shipwrecked his faith. Yeah. He, um, you know, he, he so why I, th I think that's important is for Paul unity 
did not mean mean theological laziness. No. Like, and, and I think sadly what often happens is what we mean by unity is, ah, let's just all come together and make it all good to go. And yeah. actually, yeah. there are some differences that need to be divided over. I mean, if we're going to talk about whether Jesus was God or not, that is a divide over issue. The problem is we've taken minor issues and made those the major issues. So unity is not like, let's all get together, sing Kumbaya, and pretend like everything's fine. Unity sometimes needs to look somebody in the face and say, you're wrong, and I cannot be in fellowship over you uh, with you over this. Um, yet at the same time, this idea that you're bringing up to us, that the privilege, it, it, honestly, we got to think of it. To, wherever there is preference, there is privilege. And to be able to choose like where I get to go to, we got to recognize, first of all, that is a remarkable privilege to be able to choose a church. Um, if you go to Tunisia, in which there are 16 Christians in a, in a city of 3 million, I was in a, a, a town, a million people in Tunisia, and there were 16 Christians, known Christians in that town. They don't have a preference over whether they're going to go to the church over here or over there. They're going to give up everything they have to go across the city and find the other 16 people that love Jesus. Um, we just, if we're going to have preference, that's fine. But we've got to remember it in light of the global church and not take that uh, privilege uh, to to a level uh, where to, to we, we just got to remember that and just treat it with tremendous humility and not utilize those preferential differences. In oh, and I would say this too. This is interesting. Okay, I noticed this. When I'm in the Bible Belt, and we got some Bible Belt listeners. Thank you, Bible Belt people. All of you that listen, we love you too. When I'm in the Bible Belt versus when I'm in Portland or Eugene where I'm at, I notice something very different. And that is that in the Bible Belt, preference usually leads to um, – let me change that. In in places like the Bible Belt that are predominantly Christian by culture, um, differences lead to fracture. Mm. Whereas in places like Portland or post-Christian environments – those differences actually can tend to bring people together. Yeah, uh, and and in a weird way, I think um, in a in a pre-Christian world, um, uh, those differences didn't they 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 had a di- very different role than they do now um, in in places that are predominantly Christian. But I, I think okay, I'll just close with this, NJ. I think if we are a part of a community where I am loving all the people that are just like me, something is lost. Um, we we are we are missing something of the apostolic spirit here, um, you know. I as in conclusion with this talk, you know, I, we I would suspect it is really difficult to even say the creed or even say you believe in in Jesus as Lord without some implicit belief in the church. Because we got to remember this creed was written by the church. Mm-hmm. To say Jesus is Lord is to retweet the ancient Christian community. It's a belief in the church, mm-hmm. and. You know, with the earliest church, you know, when the Nicene Creed was happening, there were stories of bishops from all over the world coming with their eyes that have been cut off and hands being cut off because of the journey. It was so long. It took six months to get there. And they sacrificed being in their communities to go write these creeds so they could go back and serve their churches. I just wonder in our moment in history, let's come, let's get our good theology and our church back together again and, and see them as not mutually exclusive realities. I don't know. What do you think? I think it's crucial now more than ever. Um, you know, I, I think where the differences start to be tolerated or even appreciated is where there's friendship. I've noticed this even with other th- yeah. other scholars. Yeah. Um, you know, I have one of my one of my closest friends here in Portland, and theologically, we're very different, almost opposite. 
But when we come together, because we have a friendship, um, we could talk about our families. We could talk about, um, you know, what's going on in our lives. You know, there's there's just love there between us. There's friendship there that that can transcend those differences, uh, even appreciate them. We can start to learn from one another. But because there is um, an appreciation for the other person, so it's going to take a step forward to say, I'm going to get to know this person that's different than Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get to know this other pastor. I'm going to get to know this other church and try to find some commonality of mission um, so that we can capture and realize that vision of the oneness of the church. Yeah. Yeah. To the church. To the church. To the church.